well, manufacturing was coming back to the U.S. for a little while there. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. A couple of years ago, it looked like we might be seeing the beginning of a trend where at least some manufacturing that had been offshore to China was showing signs of returning to the U.S. More recently, however, it would appear that this pattern has flipped in favor of more production in China, parts of Southeast Asia, and maybe Mexico, at the expense of domestic sourcing. The picture comes from the latest Carney Reshoring Index. And to help us understand the new findings, I'm joined on this episode by Carney partner Patrick Vandenbosch. He'll give us insight into the factors that are behind key sourcing decisions today, including the COVID-19 pandemic, U.S.-China tariff war, and chronic supply chain congestion around the world. And by the way, he's still bullish on U.S. manufacturing. Here's my conversation with Patrick Vandenbosch. Patrick Vandenbosch, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Bob. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Thank you for being with me today. I'd like to start by asking you a little, tell me a little bit about the Carney Reshoring Index. How long have you been doing it and how frequently do you issue new versions of it? As you actually may recall from my previous appearance on your podcast a while back, the Reshoring Index is actually a proxy and it tracks the year-over-year change in a ratio with, mm. on the one hand, the total manufactured goods that are imported from those traditional 14 Asian low-cost countries like China, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, you know the ones. And then in the denominator, we have the domestic manufacturing gross output. And if that ratio goes up, there's a larger increase in imports from those low-cost countries, then there is an increase in domestic gross output. And therefore, it's safe to conclude that there's no net reshoring versus the previous year. And oh, I see. Of course. And how many years have you been doing it? Well, we've been calculating and tracking it for the last eight years, and it really was intended to figure out to what extent U.S. reshoring was actually happening. And I would say up until 2019, the shifts in global supply chain that ultimately end up in the U.S. were actually relatively modest. Most years, we actually saw a relative increase in imports from those 14 traditional Asian low-cost countries. So really the opposite of reshoring. Okay, so what's the latest takeaway from uh, the latest results of this newest index? We started seeing a, a shift in, first time in 2019, and that's when the U.S.-China trade war started to have its effect, resulting in China losing about $90 billion in U.S. imports from 2018 to 19. Now, China had been losing some of its portion of the overall U.S. imports from those Asian low-cost countries to Vietnam and Malaysia and India ever since 2016. And actually, some of it was as a result of Chinese companies themselves moving manufacturing operations to these countries, trying to get away from the double-digit year-on-year labor cost increases in the country. But right. this kind of a drop, that was something of a different magnitude. And we also saw that in addition to countries like Vietnam continuing to pick up some of the stuff that China lost, we actually saw Mexico benefiting. Then last year, and the first, year, first half of this year, was, of course, dominated by COVID. And it showed us that even though the U.S. would like to move away from importing from Asia and, and China more specifically, 
We're really not yet ready to do that. You just have to look from the West Coast ports out over the ocean and you see the amount of stuff that's coming in. So Asia and China imports have been extremely strong ever since the second half of 2020 and, and even more so in the first half of 2021. So can we conclude that to the extent that there might be any reduction in production out of China, that would be shifting not to the United States necessarily, but maybe to other places in Southeast Asia? Not only to Southeast Asia. There are definitely portions that keep going to Southeast Asia. Specifically, I mentioned earlier, Vietnam was a country that benefited. But Vietnam has its limits. Um, As you know, there's uh, only a fraction of the population that you have in China. And so there's also a lot of other countries that have emerged, depending a little bit on the industry, as an alternative to China. But none of them are really having the size and scale that is necessary to take over China's role as the factory of the world, except maybe India. And this is where it gets interesting, because the Indian government has really been readying a whole host of land and land reforms to offer companies that want to move manufacturing there. And they've been actually actively reaching out to a bunch of multinationals to establish manufacturing operations there. They have this Make in India, Make for India, Make for Global initiative, and and it's intended to provide a real boost for their sector. And of course, (laughs) corporate tax reduction from 30% to potentially as low as 15% if you start to plant there doesn't hurt either. But there are Mm -hmm. challenges. As you know, in India, the, the infrastructure has been one of the things that turn away some multinationals. So there's also a whole bunch of government initiatives around transportation infrastructure, not unlike what recently got approved or is in the process of being approved here in the U.S., just to get them up to snuff. So it is a a pretty interesting contender and definitely a country to follow. Notwithstanding this push for this possibility of India, I have been told by a number of people one of the potential problems with India is that it is still highly bureaucratic, despite what sounds like new efforts to attract production, still a problem. Is that the case? Yeah, I would say on the uh, ease of doing business scale, India isn't quite there. That's not something that will change overnight. But then again, many of the issues that are giving companies some second thoughts about potentially reshoring to the U.S. are not going to go away overnight either. What might be the arguments that companies would accept as a possibility to convince them to reshore? What are the considerations that would lead them to do that? Well, I guess there's a a few issues that really need to be overcome to make that a, a real option companies. And and don't get me wrong, everybody's looking at it right now because every and all options basically are being considered by companies, right, with the current shortage we're having of uh, raw materials and labor and what have you. But specifically to the U.S., the lack of labor and specifically skilled labor, as well in, in traditional fields as pipe fitters, maintenance mechanics, and so on and so on, as well as more modern fields like everything related to digital technologies, is a challenge. Actually, I was in Detroit yesterday in one of those Manufacturing USA institutes. This one's called Lyft. We've got our own digital model factory with these folks to help companies figure out how to use digital technologies to teach employees quickly how to safely and efficiently execute tasks on the shop floor. And and we're seeing that as a huge demand for that for these Manufacturing USA institutes because it is critical to get manufacturing up and running that you bring employees that probably don't have the right skills up to speed quickly. And I guess even getting the numbers of people these days is a problem. I mean, there's employment crises in industries across the board. I don't know how long it's going to last, but is that not a disincentive at this point? Yeah, there's definitely right now a tremendous shortage, but I think there's a general expectation that there will be employees, especially after the government support runs out. 
uh, but not necessarily with the right skills. So that's where training and, and also investment in modern, efficient digital equipment becomes key. Because the lack of investment is probably an issue that can be addressed faster than overall upskilling the labor pool. And we're actually seeing already companies invest quite a bit in equipment. If you look just from Q4 of 2020 to Q4 2019, there was a 64% increase in robot investments, and not just in automotive this time, but also food processing, consumer goods, life sciences, and so on. And then mm-hmm. just yesterday, the uh, the published July U.S. Durable Goods Report uh, continued to show some really good numbers for equipment investment. So there is definitely there a movement towards investment in capital goods, basically. The challenge that will be the hardest to overcome in the short term is a lack of an ecosystem. And I'm talking about not just suppliers, but also universities and funding for research, uh, labor, of course, and logistics infrastructure. Give you an example, right? Even though assembly now takes place in the U.S. for many products, there's still a lot of parts coming from overseas, China, other places. So the supply chain is still as long and as vulnerable as before. So that's one thing that you can't solve unless you have suppliers come and move close to you here in the U.S. Fundamental research and people who do that kind of work are there, uh, but there's typically been a gap between that type of work and then taking those great ideas and technologies to the next level where they become commercially viable. And that requires some risk-taking and some capital that we've probably not had enough of. And then don't forget logistics infrastructure because (laughs) everything's geared in this country towards west-east flows. But if you're going to have more domestic manufacturing, it'll primarily be in, I would imagine, right-to-work states, which are somewhat on the south of the country, and they might even be supported with imports from Mexico for some of those more labor-intensive parts that are now still coming from Asia. And that'll trigger a south-north flow, which will require 3PLs and investors in commercial real estate like warehouse to completely redeploy their assets. So all of that is part of that ecosystem that will need to be rebuilt, and that will take a little bit of time. Between U.S. and Mexico, we had some of that in the automotive industry there a few years back when there were actually dedicated trains going back and forth with parts and the like. Uh, but I don't know. I guess that sort of went away for one reason or another, right? And there would have to be much more of that. Um, yeah. and, and if we put domestic operating, manufacturing operations in the south of the country, we'd still, to an extent, rejigger the whole, uh, the whole internal supply chain and transportation flows in the country. You're also suggesting, it sounds like, that, that, that we're talking about if there is a lack or paucity of R&D and university support and the like, that the people who would need to be hired to support these highly automated operations would have to have a level of skill and knowledge that just isn't there right now in correct numbers, right? Yes, there's definitely a need for people with skills for that, but there's also still a need for people to actually operate the machines themselves because not everything's going to be automated. And that's where it becomes critical that you provide these people with tools that allow them to do the job without necessarily a ton of training or a ton of background, because that is just not there. That skill is not there. People haven't taken STEM courses. Well, that's a general statement, but there's not been enough people that have been taking STEM courses over the last 10, 15 years to really provide that skillful pool. So bottom line on the reshoring index as we see it now, really not much movement. In, in, in terms of reshoring, right? Well, it, it, it flipped back, right? It flipped back yeah. from what was started because of the trade war to now um, going back to getting much more product from those low-cost countries. I do think, though, that there's a fundamental difference this time around in a sense that companies we've been speaking with 
all have ideas and plans and thoughts about bringing product back or bringing manufacturing operations back. The timeline against which that'll occur, of course, depends a little bit on how much capital they have available to deploy right now and how quickly that, that labor pool can get back up to a level that you can you can put them in the in plants and put them actively and efficiently at work. There is more of a, an incentive, if you will, for companies to geographically diversify away from China. So people that have had too many eggs in the China basket have definitely started to redeploy them. And the U.S. is, I guess, in many ways, just as valid an option as any of the other countries. It just requires a few things to fall in place. Not leaving China altogether, but sort of what they call a China plus one strategy? Or, or two or three, or two. because think yeah. about it. If, if right now you are in China and Vietnam, you still have a chance because Vietnam, with its zero COVID policy, just basically shut down the whole of South Vietnam, where all the manufacturing is located. I've been wondering, too, because with a lot of what we're talking about here are really long-term strategies. It takes years to fully switch a manufacturing base from one country to another. But in the meantime, as you point out, we're facing shortages and crises right now. So what are companies doing on a short term in order to solve the problems of the moment or to the extent that they're able to do anything? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, there are always things you can do. They're just not going to be cheap, right? So companies are definitely increasing inventory wherever possible. Um, for instance, the whole Christmas rush has already started several weeks ago. Companies are just trying to make sure they have product to sell to begin with. And of course, <laughs> there are risks with holding inventory. And I remember one of our large consumer goods clients, they were part of the lucky ones that saw demand for the product go up during covid and they initially struggled real lightly to get enough supply of plastic bottles. So when they finally did get hold, they ordered about five times the amount they normally order. Uh-huh. And at the meantime, the marketing side of the house was putting a new product launch in motion that required a whole different type of bottle. So now the company stuck with a bunch of old bottles. Uh-huh. So the good old public uh-huh. effect right, that will hit you hard, especially in these days. So so there, there is a back, I would I say, a, a challenge with that, but it is one option. Others are obviously looking for supply options in other parts of the world. So we, we see companies go both ways. The ones that were heavy on domestic supply before COVID are now looking outside of the U.S., including China. And that's where some of that congestion on the West ports starts to come into play. And some of them that were heavy on Asia, they're looking now for near and reshoring opportunities. You raised the idea of the possibility of too much inventory as a risk. A lot of companies, their thinking is the opposite right now, that they feel that the just-in-time strategy failed them to the extent that they didn't have the inventory when they needed. So I suppose it's a good reminder that the other thing is also possible, that you can go too far (laughs) in the other extreme, right? Yeah, it it does come down to just all your planning processes and basically the left hand and the right hand talking. It's, It's It's pretty basic, but it's a challenge for many, many large corporations to do that well, and that's when you see examples like that. Yeah, and meanwhile, we also have the persistent shortage of microchips and other raw materials right now that I would imagine have a real impact on stifling attempts to create a a, a greater manufacturing base in this country, right? Yeah, correct, yes. And, of course, those require massive investments, and and the U.S., but many other countries are pushing hard to attract enough investment to build – well, not just attract, but also subsidize investment to build their own semiconductor manufacturing. There are other things that also are in tremendous shortage. I'm sure you've read about the shortage in foam, but that's something that can be somewhat substituted with, for instance, fiber. So mm-hmm. companies that require foam have been looking at using fiber. And now, of course, you start to have a shortage in fiber. So, But there are other options for those kind of products. And then for others, there's absolutely nothing that you can substitute it with. And in that case, you got to go into allocation. 
And, and that's been another eye opener for all the companies that they found out that the way that they calculate things like customer profitability was maybe not as accurate as they thought. And so when they used that as a, a way to prioritize who they were going to allocate volume to and who not, they sort of got caught a little bit flat footed. You know, I would have thought that the port congestion problem might have served as one factor that would cause companies to reconsider the idea of, of, of reshoring. But at the same time, even if they, as you point out, if they do reshore to a basic assembly and manufacturing operation in this country, they're still relying on imported parts and port congestion becomes a just as serious a factor in shutting down a, a plant here in this country as anywhere else, right? Yeah. Look, and, and in essence, if you think about the, the timeline over which you make a decision on putting capital in the ground and, and sealing the ground and building a plant, in that context, the whole port congestion is a very short-term problem, right? Yes, of course. Right now, you're paying maybe $12,000 for a container coming in from the Orient versus 2000 before. Of course, depending on who you talk to, it could be anywhere from solved by the end of the year towards solved by two years from now. But still, even in that time horizon, it's, it's a relatively short-term problem compared to making decisions that will, will stick with you for 10, 15 years when you put a plant down somewhere. Well, I'm hearing some hard, cold truths from you, Patrick, that perhaps belie these aspirations to shift a lot of manufacturing to the United States. But thank you so much for sharing with us, Patrick Van Den Bosch, the results of the latest Carney Reshoring Index. I look forward to checking in with you again to see if there are any major changes in the years to come. But for now, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And just for the record, I am still very bullish about U.S. manufacturing. It'll just take a little while. <laughs> okay, let's let's make sure that, we, that you said that. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. That was my conversation with Patrick Vandenbosch of Carney, talking about the trend toward reshoring, or maybe not. We're online at www.splychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.